at this time, if you will stand with me for the reading of Scripture, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. If you want to use the table Bibles, that's page 908, and I believe it's also on the screen above me. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, does anyone else think that Ford Frick is not a name that you should probably pronounce in church on a Sunday morning? It's, it is the name of the park, I promise. That's, not, that's what's happening there. But uh, it's great to be worshiping with you uh, all this morning. And so one of the things that we do at, here at, at Missio Day is we want to be a place that is completely saturated in Scripture. And what we mean by that is we want every aspect of our church to be permeated with God's Word. And one of the chief ways we do that as a Sunday gathering is by making sure that our Sunday sermons go through whole books of the Bible, taking a verse at a time. So Aaron Aaron did a great job of uh, pinch hitting last week with that and going through Acts chapter the end of 15, beginning of 16. But this morning is the 26th sermon that we will have had in the book of Acts. And so that passage we just read this morning that Stacy just read is from Acts chapter 1. is the very first sermon we did uh, almost a year ago now, nine months ago. And then that there's a lot of things that we see stand out. Two of which I want to highlight is the idea that Jesus calls his disciples to be witnesses of him, uh, uh, because, proclaiming to everyone else what God has done for them, the transformation that they have observed through the power of the resurrection. And the second thing he does is he tells them to be those witnesses to the ends of the earth. Okay, and Jesus obviously knew that those 12, those 11 men there on that hillside were not going to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what that means is that there was implied within that command that you and I and every Christian who has ever lived is a part of this same calling. We are all called to be disciples of Jesus who go to the ends of the earth in order to make more disciples. The, re- the reason that God uh, established his church was to further his mission. So, so the, the, our church name is Missio Dei. That's that Latin phrase of the mission of God. And what we see in this theological concept is that God doesn't have a church and then he gives the church a mission. He has a mission to save people and he created a church for the furtherance of that mission. That's why we exist. So a non-missional church or a church that doesn't help people find Jesus or proclaim the gospel in ways that is understandable to their context, if you are a non-missional church, that's an oxymoron. You're, You're not a true church if you are not a church on mission. And so what we can see from the corporate, for us as a church, our job is to take the gospel to people who don't yet know Jesus, then that's also true with us as individuals. If you are a Christian who doesn't love your non-Christian neighbors with gospel intentionality, you're not living out what it means to be a Christian. Okay, God calls all of us into this mission field. We are all missionaries. And for some of us, that means God calls us to go overseas into foreign countries and foreign cultures and take the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus. For all of us, God calls us to be missionaries by uh, proclaiming the gospel on our streets and to our neighbors and to our family members and coworkers, all of those things. You, if you are a follower of Christ, you have a ministry. Okay, it is, ministry is not something that paid professionals do. If you are a disciple of Jesus, God has given you a ministry to your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. 
Now, hopefully at this point, 26 sermons into Acts, this sounds familiar. You might be thinking, I think we used this exact same introduction a few weeks ago when we went through Acts chapter 14. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is the purpose of Acts. Every week when we gather, we want to be reminded that as a follower of Christ, God has given you an assignment, a divine mission from God in order to take the the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so so for us this morning, what we want to do is continue to repeat this theme of if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have a ministry. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're here just checking out Christianity or a friend bought you, brought you, I want you to understand that, that when God invites you to himself like he is doing right now, when he calls you to his side to save you from your sins, he also gives you an assignment. He gives you a job to help other people follow him and know him who he is. Okay, so, so with that, what, a lot of times what we hear is you have a ministry and what that translates to us is, oh crap, I got a lot of stuff to do now. I have to give of myself, and ministry is going to cost me a lot of things. And I think one of the things we're seeing through the book of Acts is that is true in some extent. Okay, when you are called to the ministry, like every Christian is, you are called to give of yourself. But the beauty of this passage we see this morning is when you give of yourself for the proclamation of the gospel, you get the joy of seeing the transformation that the gospel inevitably brings. When you give of yourself for proclaiming the gospel, you get the joy that that transformation inevitably brings. So let me say a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 16 together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it is authoritative, and that when we sit under the teaching of your inspired and inerrant words, that our souls are refreshed with the the streams of living waters that comes from your spirit. And so I pray that as we study this passage, it would not be words on a page, but it would instead be something that enlivens our souls and shows us the beauty of who you are and what the assignment is you have called us to as your children. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So to set the context, uh, last week Aaron um, set the the story of um, Acts chapter 16 as it begins. Paul is beginning the second missionary journey. There was this painful parting where he and his close friend Barnabas couldn't agree on some things, but he stepped out in faith anyway. He he rebuilt his ministry team. So now instead of it being Paul and Barnabas, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy and then Luke, the person who wrote the letter that we're reading this morning. Uh, And and what there was, there's this call from God, this sovereign vision where God said to Paul that he should go go to Macedonia and he should cross this uh, short sea and go proclaim the gospel in this region of Macedonia. And I have a map on behind me because I want you to see where we're at because this is a hugely significant moment in the history of the world. That red circle there is where this is going to take place this morning. And the significance of that is with this journey, with this boat ride Paul's going to begin with today, he crosses over from Asia into Europe. Okay, and now as a first century Jew, the, Europe, the idea of Europe didn't exist. But what we know from world history is that the first convert we see in this chapter today is the first European Christian. And from there, that starts this chain of events for 1,800 years where more and more people in Europe become Christians. And then from that base of Europe, missions and ministry went out to the ends of the earth, to, to, to large sections of the world. And so this hugely significant event happened because Paul was faithful to step into the ministry God was calling him. He saw this vision of someone calling him to Macedonia, and he was obedient to that call. And so in one sense, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, this is the A-team. Can you, can you look at all these people that, were, that are going to this ministry. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, people who wrote together over half of the New Testament. Okay, you're like, what a powerful gathering of people. But the important thing here is it's not the power of those people. It's the power of the Spirit within them. 
And so anytime you step into ministry in obedience, you have that same Holy Spirit empowering you. And Paul, for all that he accomplished for the kingdom of Jesus, Paul is no more significant than you or I are when we take the gospel to people who need to hear of it. So let's see how this, this mission trip unfolds. Uh, but in Acts chapter 16, we're going to start off in verse 11. Uh, and, and what we see here is uh, this, this new team of missionaries taking this step. Uh, so if you have a Bible uh, on the table, the table Bible is page 925. If you're in your Acts journal, it's page 94, but let's read. So setting sail from Troas, we made, so we, all these we passages mean that Luke is now with Paul. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there were, uh, was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So one of the things we see, first of all, is the character traits of these missionaries who go into the city of Philippi. We see that Paul and his companions are obedient, uh, uh, strategic, and dependent. Okay, they are obedient to follow this call, this vision from God to go into Macedonia, to Philadelphia. They are strategic. When they get to the city, they go to a place looking for somewhere where they can find people who would uh, be hungry for the gospel or desire to know who God is. And so uh, they, they go to this place by the river because Philippi doesn't have a synagogue where Paul normally starts. And instead, if there was no synagogue, people who were God-fearers or worshiping the God of the Old Testament would gather on the outside of the city by a river in order to have that for their, their ceremonial cleansings and things like that. So he's strategic. He goes to where he knows the people will be. And last of all, what we see here is Paul is dependent. He is dependent on the Holy Spirit to be the one to save people. Notice that when it says that he preached the gospel to Lydia, look at verse um, 18. When it says, and the Lord opened, or sorry, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, Paul has no ability or power of himself to save Lydia. But what it is instead is a sovereign act of grace from God himself who opens the heart of this woman to receive the gospel that is preached to her. And so from those three things, for being obedient, being strategic, and being dependent, we see that that is the character traits of all faithful ministries. And, and if you and I have a ministry, we need to be those three things as well. We need to be obedient. Do, do you believe that God has actually given you a ministry? that you have a sphere of influence, that you can exert your influence for the glory of God and the good of the people around you? Are, you? are you strategic with that ministry? Do you go to places where you know the people are going to be? I, th I think a great example of this was yesterday, right? The, the cotton candy hangout at the, the Peyton Fair. Uh, we're just handing out water and cotton candy, but that's a strategic thing we're doing. We're saying if you get some cotton candy and water and we invite you to church, maybe the spirit will work in your heart. You'll come to church and you'll hear how much Jesus loves you and what he did for you on the cross. I think, I think the women's uh, park play and pray is another great example of this. Falcon has a ton of young moms with young kids and where are you going to find them on a Tuesday morning in the middle of the summer. You're going to find them at a park looking for something for their kids to do and longing for significance and meaning and a desire to understand who God is. Those are the strategic things we can do. And lastly, we need to be dependent. We need to recognize that ministry success does not depend on our intuition or our eloquence or anything like that. Ministry to success depends on the Holy Spirit opening someone's heart to receive the good news of the gospel for them. And that's something that God and God alone can do.
The other thing I see that here that's super fascinating is the fact that it was a group of women that were gathered at this river. So in, in order to have a synagogue in the ancient world, you had to have 10 Jewish men, 10 heads of households, in order to gather together in a synagogue. And so Philippi did not have 10 Jewish men in order to make it a synagogue. Instead, what Paul got, finds when he goes to the river is a group of a handful of women trying their best to worship God. And every leader in the ancient world would see a group of women, a handful of women, and see this as so insignificant that it wasn't even worth their time. But instead, Paul, empowered by Jesus, follows the model of Jesus that gives women dignity and value and respect, recognizes them as an image bearer of God, and goes to them. And with that ministry, we see the first convert in the, nation, or the continent of uh, Europe is a woman named Lydia. Like what, what a beautiful, faithful ministry that Paul took. When society said they weren't even worth your time, Jesus says, I love them and I died for them. And so there's this terrible idea out there that Christianity is sexist and that you need feminism in order to find value and dignity for women. But if you look throughout church history, the most value and honor and dignity that has come to women has always been rooted in Christianity. Christianity would not have taken over the entire continent of Europe if it wasn't for the faithful ministry of so many women in the church. The next thing we see with this is that Lydia, when her heart is transformed, it doesn't start with just her heart, okay? The Lord opened her heart, and because of that, she opened her home. She was hospitable. She invited Paul and his companions to come stay with her so that her house, instead of just being the place where she lived, her house was transformed into an outpost of ministry to this whole city of Philippi. And many biblical scholars think that that's probably the location of the church that Paul wrote his letter of Philippians to was to her home. And that, that's a beautiful picture of what ministry can entail is that when you have this ministry, God opens your heart, you also open your lives and your home and all of your possessions to those around you so other people can hear of the good news of Jesus. There's this wonderful book by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House, Plea, House Key. And listen to how she describes hospitality. She says, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Let God use your home, your apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Okay, you have a ministry, and sometimes that's as simple as inviting your neighbors over to your house for a meal so you can love them in Jesus' name and tell them who Jesus is and what he did. And if you do that, if you are obedient to this understanding that you have a ministry, that you are called to proclaim the gospel, if you give of yourself for the proclamation of the gospel, you get the joy of seeing lives transformed when they come to know Jesus as their Savior. Okay, so, so more joy sounds good, right? We all would like to have a little more joy in our lives, but there's also this truth that in addition to joy, when we come to Jesus and we use our lives for ministry, we also get suffering as well. Let's keep going in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we see this crazy story where there's this demonized girl who is following Paul and Silas, and she is proclaiming that that they're here to tell you the way of salvation, the servants of the Most High God. And it begins with this demonized woman uh, 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 attacking the ministry of Paul, and it ends with Paul and Silas in prison. Okay, in the middle of that, the demonized woman is freed from her demonic possession and she is restored to her right mind. It's this amazing miracle that God does of freeing this woman from spiritual bondage. But I think we want to talk about first is the idea of why was this woman following Paul saying these people uh, are servants of the most high God to proclaim to you the way of salvation? Like, doesn't that sound like it's true? Like, like, why is Paul annoyed by this person? It's like some hype woman behind him. Like, you know those boxers when they walk into the ring, they have the belt. It's like, hey, here's, here's what's going on, about to happen here. The reason that Paul is so annoyed by this is because this is always Satan's strategy. If Satan can't stop the message, his desire is to control the narrative. And that's what's happening with this woman. She is trying to control the narrative of what Paul and Silas are there preaching. The way that this demon through this woman is doing that is in Israel, if you talk about the most high God, you mean Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They are in Greece right now. And in Greece, if you talk about the most high God, you mean Zeus ruling from Mount Olympus. And so what she is doing, she's taking this message and she is translating it into some cultural idolatry, hoping that she can undermine what it is that God is doing through the ministry of Paul and Silas. And that is exactly what Satan does today. How often do you hear Christianity where God wants you to be happy and healthy and wise and have everything going your way with no suffering in your life? And what it is is it's taking the Christianity and it's undermining it with this lie, this cultural false narrative. Or Christianity where a bunch of people can get together and try to pursue political power together and win elections. And what that's doing is it's taking the message of Christianity and it's undermining it with this cultural narrative that is not the true gospel. Like in the midst of that, we see that the, what happens is, is spiritual warfare. This woman is possessed by a demon, and Paul, in the name of Jesus, delivers her from that spiritual bondage. Okay, and so in our modern world, we don't feel comfortable with that. We're like, demon possession seems weird. I'm not sure that's something that happens still. It's probably something that they just wrote about in the Bible because it was so long ago. But the truth is, the spiritual reality around us is as true now as it was back then. Okay, we still have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who desires to undermine the work that Jesus is doing in our culture. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He talks about the two different extremes that we can fall into when it comes to demons. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What he's saying is like, Demons are real, Satan is real, but if you obsess about them too much, you're doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Okay, so, so in light of this reality of spiritual warfare, we have this promise that it's not our own strength or our own knowledge, our own ability that can free people from spiritual oppression. It's the name of Jesus. Paul doesn't rely on himself at all. He says, in the name of Jesus, the power and the authority of Jesus, this woman is freed from the bondage that she was in. I think the other thing that this shows us is that behind every broken person is spiritual oppression. Behind every broken person is spiritual oppression. And so we, in one sense, this is obvious with the girl who is demon-possessed. She is being oppressed by this spiritual force. But the same is true for her slave masters. Okay, the slavers are also being driven by spiritual oppression. They, they are so 
consumed by the demon of greed in this story, the power of greed in this story, that they are willing to take a young woman's torment and twist that for their own financial gain. And can you imagine the psychological horror that would come from being a slave girl who was being used to bring money to your owners by fortune-telling? And these owners were willing to abuse this girl in order to line their own pockets. And what happens when this girl is freed and she's restored to her right mind, instead of celebrating, they realize that their pocketbook, their money, their income is threatened, and because of that God being threatened, they then go and attack Paul. Okay, behind every broken person is spiritual oppression, whether it is an actual demon indwelling someone or whether it's the forces of greed and evil and power and all those things that can get uh, in us. And so Paul sees this. He sees the brokenness of these people and he, he ministers in the midst of that. And this is where I don't think the ESV does a good job of translating this word. It says, Paul was greatly annoyed. And it makes it sound like he's just had enough. Like he's an older sibling. He's like, ah. Oh, Dad, can my younger brother stop following me? I want some time alone. Like, it makes it sound like he, annoyed is like a selfish thing. What the word actually means is that he is grieved. He is heartbroken. He is frustrated at seeing the effects of this demon's power in front of him and the brokenness that he's bringing. And out of love and compassion for this girl, he prays for her to be freed from the spiritual oppression. Okay, that, that's the beauty of what happens here, the brokenness that she is freed from and delivered from. But the other thing that we see with this is it ends then with them being beaten with rods, right? An incredibly painful, publicly humiliating thing and then thrown in prison and they have no idea what's gonna happen to them the next day. Okay, so, so, so that suffering is a theme throughout the entire book of Acts. Every time these people minister and follow God's call to be obedient into ministry, there is spiritual warfare and there is physical suffering. Okay, and, and that's the hard-nosed truth about what ministry will always entail. If you are faithful to step out into ministry, whatever God is calling you to do in front of you, you will have to endure pain. Okay, but how you endure pain and whether you stick to your ministry despite that pain will determine how much joy you get on the other side by seeing the work that God does through that. Okay, there's no way around the pain that you come. There's, this is an awesome quote about uh, leadership in ministry. But if you are in ministry, you are leading something, whether it's your family or your discipleship collective or anything. We are all called to be spiritual leaders. So listen to this quote about pain and leadership. It says, you can exercise and sustain personal leadership only to the extent of your capacity to bear pain. If you can bear only your pain, then you can't really lead. If you can respond and bear only to the pain of your family, then your family represents the full scope of your leadership potential. If, however, by God's grace, you can recognize and bear the pain of those around you, then the scope of your leadership potential is limited only by the scope of your burden and capacity. All this talk about bearing may seem off-putting to some. You may be thinking, isn't leadership more about vision and the ability to inspire than about pain? Not really. To be sure, there is a kind of leadership that can rouse people to action for a short time, but enduring leadership invariably will be built upon the confidence that those whom you call leader would sacrifice themselves not only for the cause they share with you, but even for you yourself. Okay. In ministry, when you are faithful to give of yourself for ministry, you will be called to endure pain for the sake of another. But when you do that, you receive the joy of seeing the transformation that God uses through your ministry to see lives transformed. Okay, so when we talk about pain and suffering, a lot of times, what is our response? Okay, like when, when I'm in a place of suffering or, or pain or hardship, my first inclination is always to turn inward and feel sorry for myself. Because I think the more I feel sorry for myself, the more attention I can draw to myself and the more people will come to me and try to help me get rid of this pain that I'm feeling. 
But look and see what happens in the Bible when people experience pain and suffering. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay, midnight. They have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow with the ruling of these magistrates. And they're in prison. They're in, the, in stocks. They're in pain. They've been beaten. And they are praying and singing hymns and praising God. Okay, worship is always an overflow of joy. Okay, somehow in the midst of this suffering, Paul and Silas have enough joy in their hearts to worship Jesus. Okay, and, th- and we see this a lot in the New Testament where the New Testament writers say, in the midst of suffering, be joyful. Right? Paul himself says this in Romans 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Okay, and, and this is where we go wrong. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This is where we go wrong with joy. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Okay, happiness is my life is going so well, I can't help but smile. Joy is an awareness of God's glory that brings a triumphant confidence bigger than your circumstances. Your joy is an awareness of God's glory that brings a triumphant confidence bigger than your circumstances. So when you are in prison, after just being beaten, you can understand that this is not the end, that we have hope because we have a God who is glorious, who has promised to save us. So with that, after that, and then what, what happens, joy in suffering is so rare and it's so unheard of, it gives you an opportunity for further ministry. Notice who's listening to their songs. It's the other prisoners who have been beaten and are in prison alongside of them. They are complaining, they are hurting, they are wounded, and they hear these two guys in the cell next door singing about how good Jesus is. Okay, that type of joy, that biblical joy in the midst of suffering gives you a platform to declare how good Jesus truly is. Here's what happens next, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Then the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus. uh, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So this, so this prisoner is this soldier. In order to be uh, the warden of a prison like this, you'd have to have a very successful military career. Clearly his identity is grounded in his military career. And if you were in charge of prisoners and those prisoners escaped, the only honorable thing you could do is to kill yourself in order to try to maintain some dignity for having failed at your job. So this soldier is getting ready to do that. In the midst of that potential suicide, Paul cries out and says, hey, don't kill yourself, we're still here. And he's so shocked at this story, he comes to them and asks the most beautiful question in the whole Bible, what must I do to be saved? And they give this beautiful and simple, simple answer. And I think some things that are highlighting here is, one is the the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus. This guy's identity built on his military career inevitably would lead to his death. The only thing he could do was kill himself in order to maintain honor. And that's what every false god apart from Jesus does to us. 
If you give yourself for your career, you will inevitably end up killing your soul and yourself. If you give yourself for wealth, you will end up killing your soul and yourself. Whatever you give your life to besides Jesus will always lead to your death and your demise. It's only the freedom that comes from Jesus that gives us new life and a new identity. Another thing I love here is the simplicity of Paul's answer. He says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He doesn't give him this long process. He's like, well, let's, let's go through this 12 steps that need to happen. If you don't do all of these 12 steps, you might not be a Christian. He says that all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's one of the reasons I think Christianity is so powerful and is so true is because we know that it's as simple as that. There is no long, drawn-out process to be a Christian. You put your trust in Jesus. You believe that you're a sinner and that he died in your place and you are saved and you will be with him for eternity. My, um, my, my grandpa passed away yesterday and his last words on earth were, Lord, take me home. Okay? Now, luckily, we have a lot, years of his faithfulness of knowing he loved Jesus and he was a Christian. But even if we didn't, even if that was just his last words, that is the beauty of the gospel is that is enough. He didn't need to do anything else. Lord, take me home. Lord, I entrust my spirit to you. I want you to be my savior. Take me into your presence. And so if you're here and you're, and you're not a follower of Christ because you think you have to clean up or become a good person or do all these things or memorize all these verses, that's complete bullcrap. The only thing that matters is if you believe in Jesus and you ask him to save you. That's the beauty of the gospel that we preach, that we see, that we can to minister to. And when we do that, we receive the joy of seeing the lives around us transformed. When you give of yourself for the proclamation of the gospel, you get the joy of seeing the lives around you transformed. That's what happened to this guy's, uh, this prison warden. His entire family was baptized. That doesn't mean that there was infants and there was like infant baptism happening here. Sometimes people take this passage that way. What it means is that his household heard the word of God proclaimed, they responded by believing, and then they celebrated the transformation of their lives through baptism, and his whole family was baptized. And, and that's also the beauty of this gospel that Jesus brings, is he doesn't just want to save your neighbor. He wants to save your neighbor's spouse, and your neighbor's children, and your neighbor's children's friends, and your neighbor's children's teachers, and your neighbor's teachers, friends, spouses, all those people. God wants to save households. God wants to see Falcon transformed by the power of the gospel. He wants to see Peyton and Colorado Springs transformed by the power of the gospel. He doesn't just want to stop at one life. He wants to see households come to know him. I mean, Charles Spurgeon was a, a British um, excuse me, pastor and preacher in the 18th or 19th century, and he pastored almost 15,000 people in his church in London, Charles Spurgeon did. And of those 15,000 people in his church, 11,000 of them were baptized as converts and came to know Jesus as their savior. 11,000 people came to know Jesus through that ministry. Okay, Falcon is about 15,000 people. Can you imagine if our neighborhoods had 11,000 people come to know Jesus as their savior and be baptized and lived out the transformation that Jesus brings? Okay, wh what kind of joy would we get in order uh, as followers of Jesus when we observe that kind of transformation taking place? Let's, let's wrap up here in verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent and let, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And when they had taken them out, they asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So, So here's what's happening culturally. If you were a Roman citizen... All you had to do in order to stop a beating from happening or to get out of jail is literally a get-out-of-jail-free card. You just had to throw down the fact that you were a Roman citizen. And these magistrates were not legally allowed to beat you or to put you in prison. And so when they hear that, they, that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, they're afraid because they know they broke the law. They're in danger of being punished now themselves. So they, in fear, let Paul and Silas out of prison. They make this public display of, of exoneration, and they send them on their way. And so the thing for us as Americans who are chiefly concerned with our own comfort and ease, you have to ask yourself, why would Paul have endured this beating and spent the night in prison when he could have just said, I'm a Roman citizen the night before and gone home free? The reason Paul waited to this moment is because the church of Jesus, the proclamation of the gospel, was being threatened by these magistrates. And if he had protected himself by leveraging his own rights and gone free, then the, no one in the city would have understood that Paul's message was, not, uh, was to be vindicated. Okay, he was willing to lay down his own comfort so that the church that would come about after him would enjoy the protection of the government instead of the persecution from the government. Okay, he laid down his rights in order to love his church even better. Okay, that, that's, that's a beautiful picture of Paul and his life being transformed. Instead of being the one persecuting the church, he's the one who is willing to endure persecution and then publicly make a display of his citizenship so that the people who came after him would not have to endure the same persecution that he did as a missionary here. Okay, and, and again, we get to this idea of transformation, right? If you give of yourself for proclaiming the gospel, you get the joy of witnessing the transformation the gospel inevitably brings. And that's what this whole story has been about, is the great reversals we see through each of these characters. Lydia goes down to the river looking for a synagogue of the Jews, and she comes back a Christian and a member of the church of Jesus. Okay, the, 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 the slave girl is demonically taunting the gospel and is instead set free by the power of the gospel from the spiritual oppression that she was enduring. Okay, the jailer is ready to, he loses his identity, he's ready to lose his life, and instead he gets a new life and a new identity through baptism. Okay, and, and the, relig- or the leaders of the city are trying to use their power to stop the gospel, and they end up using their platform to celebrate Paul and his message of the gospel. Okay, that's the power that comes through the transformation that Jesus always brings. So then the question for us as Christians is, do we believe that this is true? Do we believe that we have a ministry we're called into? Are we, are we going to endure spiritual warfare and difficulty in the midst of that with joy? Are we going to proclaim the transformation that comes through Jesus that if you believe in him, you will be saved? And are we willing to lay down our comfort and leverage our rights for the good of the kingdom? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for these passages, uh, for the way they show us the transformation that your gospel brings. So I pray that you would use us, God, as your church that you would equip us for your mission, that you would empower us with your spirit to go to our neighbors and go to the ends of the earth, telling everyone the transformation that comes through faith in your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, if this is your first time here, the reason we sit around tables is so that after processing a passage like this, we can turn inward and we can love each other well and talk about how this passage of Scripture transforms our lives individually. So we have some questions here for you. These are just starter questions. Uh, if this is your first time, there's no pressure to share anything beyond what you are comfortable sharing, but, but here's some things to go with. Uh, what are the ministries God has called you to? 
Okay, remember, a ministry is just any sphere of influence God has given you where you can see the gospel go forth and people around you loved. Um, secondly, how is suffering and spiritual warfare a part of those ministries? As you minister, how do you encounter difficulties? And then lastly, what does joy look like in the midst of those ministries? If you, if you give of yourself for the proclamation of the gospel, you get the joy of seeing lives transformed. What does joy in the midst of those ministries look like? So we'll do that for about 10 minutes, and then we will end with a time of worship. Thanks. All right, I hope, I hope those discussions went well. Um, one of the themes that came out at our table that I love is this idea of where is your ministry? What is your ministry? And I, I bet the same was true for most of your tables, that the answers there are largely dependent on, how Kelly put it, was, is where you have proximity. It's where you are present with other people. And so if you are a stay-at-home mom with little kids all day, that is a vibrant ministry for you to disciple. And if you are a dad with little kids in your house or older kids in your house, discipling them is a vibrant ministry. If you have a job that you go to from 9 to 5, that is the potential to be a vibrant ministry for you. The thing that we need in all of those areas is just the intentionality of saying, this is my ministry and I'm going to step into that. I will give of myself for the proclamation of this gospel and I will get the joy that comes from seeing those lives transformed through the power of Jesus opening hearts from people that are far from him. And so I, I just, my prayer for all of us is that we would continue to step into those spheres and be bold with proclaiming and preaching the gospel to those that we meet. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we, we end every single week with was the time of communion Union, but we're, we're going to do communion a little bit different this week than we normally do. So, so make sure you pay attention to these directions. They're kind of being important. Um, but, but what is interesting about this passage is Paul, uh, when, he, um, when he was, before he came to Christ, he was a Pharisee. And so the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Judaism. And one of the more popular prayers among Pharisees when they began their day was, Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Right? Isn't that like blatantly sexist and all kinds of terrible things? I thank you I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And then Paul meets Jesus, and his life's completely transformed. He's no longer a Pharisee. He is a, a pastor and a shepherd and an evangelist for the church of Jesus instead. And when he goes to Philippi, who are the first three converts, the first three members of the church of Philippi? It's a Gentile, the Roman jailer. It's a slave, the girl who was possessed. And it's a woman, Lydia, by the river. Okay, so, so Paul completely altered his framework. Instead of being, I'm so grateful I'm not any of those three people, to Jesus loves those people so much, I'm going to give of myself in order to see them come to know Jesus. And one of the most powerful ways we see the transformation that the gospel brings in hearts is the way that it brings people from all different backgrounds and nationalities and races and cultures and uh, political opinions and socioeconomics. All that stuff gets laid aside and we come together and we say, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We, we are here because he bought us with his blood and we have more in common with each other through Jesus than we ever have reasons to be disunited over and so what we're going to do different for communion today is during this first song, I invite you to come to one of these three tables. If you are a follower of Christ, come to those three tables, grab some of the elements, the communion, and take them back to your table. And then after this first song, we're all going to take of the elements together as a demonstration of the unity that we have in Jesus. So, so this is Paul from Galatians 3.27. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate here after this next song. So let's worship and grab the communion elements.